This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome into the Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's Bill here with you as we are approaching the 20th anniversary of the Station Nightclub Fire, which I'm sure most of you know is a fire that took place at a nightclub in West Warwick known as the Station on February 20th, 2003. Uh, as the band Great White were taking the stage, pyrotechnics were utilized in the performance and in the ensuing moments literally very very quickly at 1107 the interior of the station caught on fire um, there's been a lot of assessment of this tragedy legal assessments civil assessments criminal assessments um, people have been held accountable but 20 years later, the tragedy still resonates on so many different levels that it's really impossible to articulate it. And I guess the only thing you can say is that it's important that we remember the station and we elevate the stories of survivors, of those who were lost, of course, of the experience of the tragedy itself from the standpoint of anybody who was in any way, shape, or form touched by this horrific event. And today's conversation with Gina Russo, who is a survivor of this tragedy and also the president of the Station Memorial Foundation, to me is what we want to look to when we assess this tragedy. And I mean that in the sense of the story of the event itself and the willingness and the willpower to survive and overcome something of this magnitude, to educate people, hopefully prevent anything like it from ever happening again, and to provide some kind of spiritual, if you will, understanding of how something like this can happen in our world. We're surrounded by events on the global stage that make us go, you know, wow. How can there be any connecting higher power, however you want to assess it? Whether that's conventional religion, personal understanding of the mysterious And this is a powerful conversation that I hope that you're able to obviously listen to, but take away, if nothing else, if you're not aware of the impact that this event has had on our community, I hope that you're able to get a better grasp of that. And if you are, I hope that this rekindles some of the spirit um, and energy you may have towards just acknowledging and assessing this horrific, horrific event. So without further ado, Gina Russo here on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Well, it's amazing uh, in, in a negative context, amazing. You know, it's really shocking that we're about to come upon the 20th anniversary of the station fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are talking offline. It's It's still one of those things that is just so hard to come to terms with. We're joined by Gina Russo, who survived that horrific night uh, and in the ensuing 
days, months, years has through foundation work, through advocacy, and really just by being a mighty spirit in this world um, has tried to make sense of something that makes absolutely no sense. So thanks so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. What's 20 years mean to you? Uh, Being grateful and blessed. Um, that has been my big theme this whole month. Um, I don't know how I got so lucky and blessed. Um, I was severely injured, third and fourth degree burn injuries, um, severe internal injuries. And uh, some of the people who passed had some catastrophic, others passed with, because of lungs, the lungs gave out. Um, I don't know, I, you know, um, it's been an incredible 20 years, those first, that first year, even three years, I couldn't imagine surviving this or wanting to survive this. Um, my only focus, I had two little boys, there was six and nine when it happened. Um, I dealt with losing a fiance. I, I just couldn't imagine living. Like, how do you, how do you rise above this? Um, and those little boys just kind of became my focus. Um, they still are now they're grown men. They're 26 and almost 30. Um, but it's been an incredible journey. Um, as tragic as it was and is, there's been so many incredible moments that I wouldn't change. Like what? Um, you know what? The people I've met, the, Mm. the friends that, that we will go to our graves with each other would have never met if this had never happened. Um, the music industry, I am, and still will always be, if there's a concert, I'm probably at the front of the stage, which mm-hmm. it should scare me because that's where I was the night of the fire. Um, but music for me uh, is healing. It, it heals my soul. You'll usually never hear a TV on in my house. It's usually music playing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, It's just been so incredible to come in contact with people I would have never, ever met. Um, even my, whatever you believe in, like my spiritual self, I can't tell you whether it's God, I can't tell you what it is, but there is a truly a higher power that has guided me through 20 years. Um, and, and whatever that is, I always say every day, thank you for whoever, whatever. Thanks for waking me up. Thanks for letting me go to bed at night. And, and, you know, I'm grateful for the years. And that community you speak of is something that's very real and it's a survivor's community. It's um, a shared experience community. And through it, there's been, we kind of touched on it and it's, I think it's important to raise the foundational work, the memorial site itself. And those are, that's a physical space that can actually provide a lot of peace. There was, there's something about being at the site of the tragedy and standing there. And trying to, as you're trying to come to terms with this, physically being in the presence of that memorial, talk about that. You know, um, I visited it in the early days when the fire happened um, to, to what it looks like today when it was, I called it chaos before. Um, the, the crosses, the just you could feel the pain. You could still feel the pain. But when we slowly started to rebuild it, um, we started in 2012 when we acquired the land. It was a process. It took a long time. Um, but clearing the land and then when construction finally started, 
until the day we opened it on May 21st, 2017. From that moment on, not just for myself, but I've met people at the park that feel the peace. It's, it, it no longer feels tragic. Yes, this tragedy happened there, but there's a sense of peace on the property now. I know people that have zero connection to this, and I mean zero, like they didn't know anybody. Some have come in from California because they just needed to see this park and they were music enthusiasts, but they could, they felt it. They could feel the peace there. And in my eyes, mission accomplished. Um, <laughs> a lot of tears, a lot of anguish to get to that point, but it was mission accomplished because that's all I wanted for the families, for the friends, for the, for the community. Yeah. It really is a beautiful place. As you said, it's, there's an element of peace that is just it's just there. It's one of those things you can't explain. It's like mirrors and magnets. There's a science behind it somewhere, but who cares? What you know is that something mighty is happening and you feel that touch of whatever that my mysteriousness is when you're there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Where do you think well, it, it's, is it, is it at a point now that we're 20 years out, do you feel like this tragedy is forgotten is slipping from public consciousness. Do you think, do you think that, you know, you get the cursory, okay, here's the news. Okay. It's the 17th anniversary or it's the, the, the 18th anniversary. And you know that there's going to be attention paid to it, even on a national level, but this tragedy resonated globally. And now I, I wonder, I have no idea. Do you get the sense that this is still something that is shaping um, people's, understanding of Rhode Island history and also in in the you're a music lover you know there's obviously been a lot of regulatory changes that have taken place but beyond that just understanding the scope of the tragedy is that still something that is there for people to grasp um I worry about that um because I I have been involved with so much um education over what happened um, it also comes to my attention every now and then that people are at our state house um, begging for the fire codes to be downgraded yeah. and nothing infuriates me more. Would you want to be a part of a $176 million lawsuit versus, I don't know, it might cost you an extra 30 grand to put some good sprinkler system in or what, you know, extra doors, um, apply for that permit. If you want to have an event at your building, what's so hard, like, would you, I don't know. To me, the, the money is so ruling in this um, that it scares me. Um, I will say that I, for the most part, anybody who was involved in those early days of the fire are still fighting and constantly saying, no, we're not doing that. We're not downgrading the laws. And so many other states have embraced what happened here. And I'm, you know, I guess if it had to happen, it um, it enlightened so many people, so, so many people. And globally and nationally, this fire is talked about. I have family in Italy that, you know, there's unsafe things there, too. And, and we talk about that all the time. And, and I've also made friends um, with a lot of victims and family members from the KISS nightclub tragedy that happened in Brazil. Yes. They lost 242, um, excuse me, yeah, 242 people. They they are they consider us one, and then that's and I they just recently had their anniversary and 
they're still fighting for justice. There really is no justice in this. There isn't. That's right. And and you, you mentioned that the, the Kiss Nightclub and, and I can attest to that as well, that, you know, having. Uh, yes, it res the station fire resonates in Brazil. It resonates in Oakland where the ghost ship fire mm-hmm. took place. And mm-hmm. those those tragedies all interlock in in a way that is, like you said, hopefully informing people moving forward. And it is surprising because, look, sure, some people are going to make an argument. Oh, this regulation or that regulation is burdensome and, you know, can't. You know, let, let's have a laissez-faire approach to everything. But, you know, 20 years ago, the station, it was wall-to-wall, ceiling-wide, covered in sound foam that was, I mean, completely not not even close to up to code. Um, you know, you look at the egresses. There's so many things that we look at now and go, wow, um, the use of the pyrotechnics. But you can also sit here and play... Monday morning quarterback on decisions and there's legal repercussions that people have experienced. No question. They're civil and criminal repercussions, Mm -hmm. but, but what's your message to anybody out there that is, you know, they're trying to, whether it's, they want to start a venue specifically, or they own a building and they are trying to chip away at these regulations that have been implemented. Don't do it. I, I just, it's not worth the money. I will gladly go to your establishment and pay extra mm-hmm. knowing that I'm safe there, that my children and someday my grandchildren, you know, that they're going to be safe. I would gladly pay extra money for that drink, for that dinner. Um, I don't get it. I don't, don't have your name tied to such a tragedy. You know, the Dedarian brothers, whatever anybody thinks of them, this is tied to them for the rest of their life. Dan Beakley, um, he's someone I would love to sit down with (laughs) Um, because they're tied to this for the rest of their life. Um, I can go about live my life and I've accomplished so much and I've done so much, but I can't imagine that weight. Do these companies and these new venues or existing venues really want that on their shoulders? I can't even fathom that, but money again, empowers everything unfortunately yeah it's sick but but you're right it's it's (laughs) it's interesting you mentioned dan beakley or the Mm -hmm. dadarian brothers or i guess you could you could say jack russell or really anybody from from the production side of this or the venue side of this tragedy have you sat down with anybody face to face have you ever had a one-on-one conversation with anybody who is found criminally or civilly liable for this this tragedy so you're going to hear it first. Yes, I did. I sat down with the Dedarian brothers um, in 2020. Uh, uh, yeah, in 2020. Um, it was just time for me. A friend set it up. Um, they were very courteous. They were very um, just let me say what I wanted to say. Um, I won't go into detail about what we really discussed, but um, it was more for me, freeing for me. Um, I was able to let go of a lot of anger and hate Um, they were very honest about as much as they could be about what they felt, um, was correct in their mind. And, and I guess we all have our own perspective of what was correct and what wasn't right. And we're all going to go to our grave with that one. But, um, it, it was, it was finally time in my life to, to sit with them. And, um, I probably would never get the opportunity to sit with Dan, but for him, it's a different perspective. Um, he was he was 
so genuine in the letters that he mailed to victims, family members and detailing stuff about my fiance who died. His name is Fred in, in this letter detailing things about Fred's life. So I know that he read that newspaper article and he really read it, you know, um, that means a lot to me. Yeah. So, so that would be like, I would love to say to him, thank you for that. At least, you know, what do you make of some of the, whether it's trial by fire, the Scott James approach to things, or just some of the different angles that people have taken on this tragedy. You feel that any of that is worth noting, or is it something that is just kind of outside of your interest as a whole? Um, I will say this. I have respect for John Berelick, um, who wrote um, the first book. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it was inconsistent, but again, we all have our own perspective. Um, but he has, um, been genuine about what he's done and contributes constantly to the foundation. Every time he does a speaking engagement, um, if there's, you know, if they, they want to pay him something, he turns it over to the foundation, which very commendable. So he wasn't looking to, you know, make a ton of money on this. Um, you know, um, I'm going to say this about Scott. I met with Scott several times and I, sort of trusted where he was going to go with that book. Um, I had no idea and he wasn't forthcoming about a few things that uh, the chapters of that book, the first chapters were going to start off with Fred and I, um, I wish I had known a little bit more and then it got a little inconsistent and I actually, I, it made me sick to, I couldn't read it. I didn't even get past the first chapter. Wow. Um, then, you know, he went, he's trying to market it and do his thing, but and they asked me to be a part of that. And I just couldn't because it was just something I was not comfortable with. Really, really interesting because that got a lot of play. And, you know, it was almost like, oh, well, we have this journalistic attempt. And this is Scott James, I should say for the listener. Scott James is, Sorry, a, yeah. is an author. I'd say, oh, it's not you. It's I, I set it up without any explanation. He wrote a book called Trial by Fire that really examined the station fire from from an alternative angle, um, I would say, I think that's the simplest way to describe it. And I found it to be quite controversial. You know, I found it to be contrary to a lot of what I had learned about the tragedy, uh, mm-hmm. the experience there. Yeah. And I had also found some overlapping experiences where Scott James was a news director uh, at a time when the Dedarian brothers worked at a news station. So I, I saw it coming from an angle that I questioned, I, you know, I actually don't really have much of an opinion on it at this point, but I thought, you know, we should talk about it because there is this alternative narrative out there that um, is getting and has gotten some attention, you know, including uh, on a PBS show I'm involved in yeah, on PBS right. weekly. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember doing that interview and thinking, I'm not, I'm not sure this should be a five or 10 minute piece. I think this needs to be a two hour podcast. Uh, to examine this, you know, this isn't an overview type conversation. This needs to go deeper. So hopefully someday that can happen so we can understand. Nice. It'd be know. nice. Yeah. It, um, you know, I, um, the, I, I, I got the book, he mailed me the book and I started to read it. And then something inside me, I don't have PTSD and I, and I, I really don't think that I do, but something was turning inside of me and I had to put the book down and I've had, you know, people in my circle have read it and they're like, what is this? And they're calling me about chapters and things they're reading. And I'm like, I I didn't read it. And then what I, and I'd like to hope I'm wrong, but I don't think that I am. 
I wrote my own personal book and it was, it was yeah. self-published. It was for my own, like kind of therapeutic purpose. And it, it, it sold, I've sold about 3,500 copies, not bad for a self-published book, but not that wasn't bad at all, <laughs> but yeah. it really wasn't where I thought I was going. Like when I did it, it was, it was more for therapeutic purposes and something to leave behind for my children, you know, to say, yeah, we survived all that. But, um, it sold and people were recognizing it. And I had a very wide range of speaking engagements. So my story was selling and my story, it, maybe and others, not just mine, I shouldn't say that, but I'll speak for me myself. It helped raise money for this foundation to build a memorial. It helped the station family fund raise money to help the victims of the fire and myself. And I, when Scott James book came out, I realized pretty quickly that um, I was supposed to be a part of his promotional team um, to help sell that book even further. And it, it bothered me. It really bothered me because never once did he say, hey, uh, for me, I'm all about my foundation, uh, all about making that memorial last. He never once said, I'm turning, I'm going to donate money to the foundation. This book sells whatever media, you know, whatever proceeds come out of the sale of this book. I want to don't donate even a portion of it to the foundation that never happened. And there was no way I was going to allow somebody to use my story so he could raise money for his own self. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it cost him money, but that's not my, you know, I felt like I was going to be used and, I, and that wasn't going to happen. I'm glad you made that decision because, you know, the last thing that should happen is that anybody is exploited yeah. in this tragedy. <laughs> Or any tragedy, but mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, let's be honest about it. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of ways that that this has been exploited, and um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's infuriating. Mm -hmm. um, I don't I don't even know what else to say about it. And I'm not even going to go into it. It's yeah. a, it and and you can just <laughs> listeners can just Google, yeah, and look at different mm -hmm. ways that this thing has been exploited for commercial yeah. use uh, by media outlets, by individuals, by authors, yeah, and. Uh, it's outrageous. Yeah. For burn victims, victims of severe tragedy, what's day one look like? And how do you get to day two, day three, day 5,000? How do you yeah. do it? A whole lot of patience. Mm. Um, I counsel new burn survivors. That's part of my paying it forward. And the only, the only true words I can give them is dig deep for the patients because it is not... Um, okay, I got discharged from the hospital, so I'm on the up, you know, it is, no, I've got to find my new way at home. And I, you know, depending on whether you suffered an amputation, no matter what it was, is you have to, you're living a whole new life. This is not, okay, um, I got discharged, so I'm me again. Um, I had to very early on and was told by people to mourn the person that I was before February 20th, let her go and learn to love the new person. It took me a long time. And I, for me, I say three years because in three years, uh, the first three years of the fire, um, I was, oh, the, the hate and the anger was consuming me. That was number one. And then the surgeries. Yes, I got discharged in June of 2023 from the hospital, but it was, I was constantly back every other month for another surgery, uh, a fix or something. And we're 20 years out. I will probably have another one in the coming months, you know, like I'm trying to have physical therapy so I can stretch out the surgery. Um, 
this is not, it's not uh, cut and dry. Uh, some people never go back in the OR and there's people like me that it just is what it is. Um, dig deep for the patients and they're not, you're not alone. That's what I tell every survivor. You're not alone. There's so many of us and we have such an incredible support system. Um, I, it hurts me when I find out someone has been like, I don't know, I met a survivor. They were 30 years into the injury and they never knew that this, it's called the Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors. They never knew it existed. Uh, one day they just happened to Google some information and found it. And it, 30 years, they thought they truly were the only ones. Um, so that's, you know, I, I dig deep, <laughs> dig deep. Your story is so incredible, you know? The station itself was a community as yes. well. Rarely discussed, but, you know, the we're in an era now where I feel, you know, music has shifted and community has shifted. And a, a town like West Warwick, blue collar music venues that are accessible um, and the people that, you you know, you saw there on a regular basis. Were, would you consider yourself a, a patron of the station before the fire? Like a, no. someone interested? No, <laughs> you know, so I'm a Cranston girl. And um, so like, well, Mardi Gras at the club had so many different names, but like that was JR's fast lane. That JR's, yeah. that's right. <laughs> like, those were my places. It seemed like we all had a territory. Yeah. Um, the few times the night of the fire was probably my third time at the station. Uh, one of my most memorable nights there was um, there was a, a, tr a Creed tribute band called Human Clay. Yep. And um, loved them. Didn't know any band members when, you know, but just loved, I loved Creed. And one of my friends was here from Australia visiting and she was such a Creed fan. And I'm like, well, they're playing their last show at the station, you know, let's go. That was probably one of my most memorable nights there. Um, another night seeing like a Van Halen tribute. That was probably my, you know, but um, they, yeah, I was not a regular. No. And that mm. night I walked in the door at 1030 without a ticket. Fred and I walked it, called the club at like 1020 and he's like, can we still get in? And they're like, yeah, sure. Come on down. Mm. Bought our ticket at 1030 and you know, a few minutes, a little while later, life changed. Yeah. 1107, I think yeah. was the. Yes. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Yeah. I remember him, us having a conversation with Dr. Metal, Fred, Fred and Mike were very good friends. Uh, they met, they would see each other every morning for coffee at the Dunkin' Donuts in Warwick and uh, chit chat over upcoming baseball season. Uh, Fred and we, Yankees fans and Mike was Red Sox. And I remember seeing him on the stage talking to Fred about, oh, you know, what's happening. Did you get your season tickets yet? And that was such a, you know, it was like a fun conversation. Those were my, you know, that's those kind of my memories in my head. And then it changed really fast, <laughs> really, really fast. And, it, you know, in my world, if the bouncer had just opened up that door when Fred and I screaming as a buyer, life would have been I, life would have been different. So many ways to look at this thing, you know, there's so many ways to look at this, this tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, a couple, a couple more questions if you're okay with it. Um, yeah. yeah. Number one, I just want to say how inspiring you are. Thank you. And really all, all the people who survived this tragedy and have elevated mm -hmm. the cause for 20 years, um, just uh just so much courage 
it means a lot to hear that because in 20 years, um, survivors haven't really been recognized. Um, you know, and, and you know, 100 people died. That is paramount. Um, but there's a lot of us, and some of us have thrived so well and taken this to. I call it a level of greatness. Like we did not let it stop us. Um, you know, in fact, it made us stronger. Um, so thank you for recognizing survivors. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so important. Um, so 20 years, how can people that either have full are fully aware of this, you know, they, they, they were watching the news that night and it happened and they know what happened or people who are somehow just finding out about this tragedy for the first time, which, you know, what, frankly, there's, you know, there, if you're, if you were born after 2003, <laughs> four, five, six, I guess, you know, it's totally conceivable that this is just yeah. one thing that maybe, maybe you've heard about, but it doesn't have the proximate, you know, um, it hasn't been a part of your life. So how do people get involved in the foundation what what do you what do you what do you want from people? Um, obviously, donations help, but what can people do? What can people do? You know, visit the site, learn, read the story wall, um, contact one of us. I am I. Geez, you can reach me anywhere. Um, you know, I am I'm an open book, and, and if telling what my story about what happened keeps the one hundred alive. That's in my. That's how I feel, and it. it we need to educate the younger children. I would love to be able to get into the school systems, talk to the seniors and the juniors and, you know, don't take this for granted. Don't take life for granted. Because even though you think you're invincible, you're not, you're not. I would love to get to be able to get to that level where we can bring it to the school systems. Let these children that were not born at that time, or maybe they had an uncle or a distant aunt or somebody, you know, maybe, or a mom had a friend, dad had a friend, but don't really know anything about it. it. We need to educate the kids on what happened that night. Um, and also they're our future. Like they're the, the future politicians and the keeping those laws in place. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping and hopeful that we can keep the younger generation um, accountable to this and let them learn about it. But it takes, it's going to take a village. It's going to take a community to do that. And, Hopefully someday at some point I can convince someone to let me get in the school systems. Yeah, that should, that should, is so to me, that's like such an obvious, like, uh, yeah, we need to make this happen <laughs> immediately. But, yeah. you know, I remember one thing I really remember from that whirlwind experience, uh, which, you know, that's the only way I can describe it from my standpoint was just, mm -hmm. it was complete and utter whirlwind upside down, uh, sort of numbing experience from, from jump street there. But one thing I remember is Don Kerchiri, the governor of Rhode Island was out of state. I believe he was in Florida. And I remember him being back there and I'll, you know, whatever political disagreements or whatever it is. Um, I remember thinking, okay, that's leadership when he, when he stood there and you couple that with the triage, the first responders, the, the work at the various hosp area hospitals, um, what was your, what's your take on just the response Rhode Island as a community coming together in the wake of that, that tragedy from, from a first responder and, and, uh, governmental leadership standpoint. Um, I would have never imagined it had, would have ever come together like it did. Uh, Don Kacheri, former governor Kacheri and I are his wife who passed and now 
I, they were, they were incredible. Um, I came out of a medically induced coma to learn from my mom and dad that Ms. Governor Kacheri and his wife came to Shriners to, to see me because they wanted to see the person. And I was in a coma. I didn't know this, but um, so there was already that bond. They had already shown up there. Um, the, the first responders, the, the firefighters, the police department, my heart hurts for them because most have never recovered. Anybody that was on scene that night, maybe they're going about their life and maybe they're still working, but this has changed them in, in such a way that they'll never go back to who they really were. And that crushes me. Yeah. Um, I get so worried sometimes if I'm somewhere and I see one of the firefighters might be there. And sometimes some have left the building because they just can't face me or because it's just so much of a reminder. But in my head, I want to say, look, look how well I've lived. You know, you did this. One of you did this. One of you pulled me out. Um, and I'm beyond grateful. Um, I, I, everywhere I've gone and everywhere I've spoken and I've done a lot of speaking with fire recruits, fire marshals. I've been all over the United States. Um, it's a big thank you. Whether you were there that night or you're in that line of work. Um, they are amazing. Who runs into a burning building? Like I think yeah. about this, I'm like who does this? I know. You know? <laughs> it, it, it's it's like whoa you know what i mean it really is it's like so inspiring like i mean yeah. like i'm yeah I, I mean i always kind of had a i mean i always had a fundamental respect for the fire department you know you grow up and they're in the parade and you know some, somebody's dad is like the yeah. assistant chief or something like that yeah. that you know between 9 11 yeah and the station fire uh-huh. uh you know, and look, there's people who go out of their way to, you know, hound the fire department because they, you know, they, they overspend on the grocery budget or something like this. And I'm always like, you know what? This is these are the best. This is the best of us. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's these people. <laughs> they, so, they really are. It's yeah. it's kind of hard to even put it into any in, in words beyond that. Uh -huh. Um, You're amazing. And Thank I've, you. I've, you know, been following your story. Thank you. For 20 years, almost 20 years, coming up on Monday. Uh-huh. And uh I, it's it, the pain that the station fire caused in our in our community is is unbelievable. Oh yes, it is. And it's uh it's just mm. yeah. It's big and, it's and big that pain. pain will never truly go away. When I've heard people say, oh, just get over it, <laughs> get over it. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I have to look at my scars, my bald head every single day, the heartache I feel for so many, you know, it's, survivor's guilt is real and it's powerful. There's no getting over this. Um, I've learned to adjust and live and, and, Living meant respecting my life because they didn't get to live because the 100 didn't get to. And it would be such a tragedy if we didn't live. We, we got so lucky, <laughs> you know. Remember the station. Absolutely. That's Remember all I can ask. Visit the site on, on February 20th. Look up above wherever you got to look and just say, we hear you, we see you. Mm. And that's, that's what I want from people. 
powerful conversation right there. And I thank you for listening all the way through here on Bartholomew Town today. So um, obviously Monday is the 20th anniversary of the station fire. It's a good day, as good a day as any to visit the park. Um, I'll certainly be there at some point. I'm sure some of you will also be there. There's going to be a memorial event in May. And uh, also um, they're working on a memorial motorcycle ride that'll take place in May. Uh, Gina, we were talking offline. That's because of our New England weather, unpredictable as it may be. So that's really where that stems from, the notion that uh, let it be, let it take place in the warm weather. There's a lot of planning that goes into that. And I just want to say a personal note on this, you know. I just want to say a personal note to you guys that I really think we need to, uh, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time on complete nonsense, right? Things that don't, at the end of the day, really matter in our political and social discourse. And then you got something that really matters. And what, what, what can you do? What, what is it that just talking about a tragedy can really do to um, impact our world, right? Here in Rhode Island or broad, more broadly, but specifically here in Rhode Island. What it can do is it can remind us of the nature of our community. The way that this tragedy reverberated in our community, it fully displays how connected we are and how unique we are. You would be hard-pressed to find somebody in Rhode Island who didn't have some level of connection to the station fire tragedy in some way, shape, or form. I look back on that night, February 20th, 2003, with a lot of sadness. I'm not going to get into my own personal experience with it. Some of you know that story. But what I will say is that I also look back on it and I say, Rhode Island, we saw the worst of the experience of living, of being a human being. And in many ways, we saw the best. We saw the best of Rhode Island as well. We saw the very, very best of our governmental leadership. We saw the best of our first responders. We saw the best of our business community in many ways. We saw the best of our journalistic community in a lot of ways, at that point in time anyway, and the immediate, you know, there are journalists who left journalism, the profession, covering that night. But you know what? They gave you what you needed at that point. They, they told that story on a local level in a way that was familiar. In a way that brought us together around a common tragic event. And you know what? There are people out there who will continuously exploit 
whatever they can get their hands on, including this tragedy. It happens. It's going to continue to happen. Shame on them. Shame on anybody who would look at the station fire with dollar signs in their eyes, with an opportunity to, you know, just simply advance their own cause without elevating the tragedy itself. Gina Russo is a perfect example of what is right in this world. And the last thing I'll say here as I sign off is when you think about an event that stands out for any reason, positive or negative, let's always try to elevate the story. Let's always try to elevate the, the spirit, the message of people like Gina Russo who defy the odds, defy conventional wisdom and show us what is possible even in a dark moment. Remember the station. The legalization of recreational cannabis that went into effect last year can open doors for your career. If you are already in the industry or wondering what is the best path to break into the cannabis field, well, the University of Rhode Island has a program to help you become highly competitive in numerous areas of the cannabis industry. Fully accredited by URI's College of Pharmacy, the certificate program is 100% online, and it can be completed in two semesters. The next application deadline for the summer 2023 session is April 4th, and courses start on May 9th. You can learn more at uri.edu slash online slash cannabis, or give them a call at 401-874-5280.